Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to a new episode of Politics for the Culture, and I'm your host, Shalana Spencer. Today, I have with me Lance Wheeler. He is Director of Exhibition at the Civil and Human Rights Museum in Atlanta, Georgia. He he previously served as the Education and PR Manager for the Margaret Walker Center of COFO Civil Rights Education Center at Jackson State University and served as the inaugural curator of exhibitions at the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum. As a public historian and community curator, Lance has worked effortlessly with civil rights families and organizations like the Megger and Miley Evers Institute to connect communities and engage youth. He serves on the Council for the Southeast Museum Conference and is a committee chair for Emerging Museums Professionals for the Association of African American Museums. Lance believes In its simplest form, museums are more than buildings that house artifacts. Museums are and should be places that take individuals on a spiritual journey, bridging the past and the present and beyond. Thank you so much, Lance, for joining us. Lance, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. It's been such a long time since we had a very great, you know, in-depth conversation. What better way to start it off with um, bringing you on for Black History Month? Um, I'm very glad to have you here. And so let's just go ahead and get started. Let's dive in. All right. So you are a historian and I have to start off by asking you, how did you find that as a career and what about history intrigued you? Yeah, so it wasn't always a career choice. Um, I, I didn't want to go in and say go into college st- saying I want to study history. I wanted to study biology. I was actually a biology major for a little bit, and um, and the reason behind that was I wanted to study big cats from the Lion King. It inspired me as a kid, and so I was like, you know what, I want to work with lions. But I really took my first biology course and then decided in the semester that it wasn't for me. And so I kind of hopped around with like trying to figure out what I wanted to do. So it was like sociology, education. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. And so I really had enough history credits to realize that this is what I wanted to do full time. And so what prompted that, I have to say early on in my uh, upbringing, my mother, Desiree Wheeler, um, ran errands for the Black Panthers when she was a little girl. So history was always a conversation in my household. And then I had a phenomenal teacher who became like my mentor, then my best friend, white woman. Her name was Patricia uh, Dello, but we called her Pat Dello, but I called her Miss Dello. And so she taught me history outside of the textbooks. And so it was always conversational for me. And then wrapping that back up, coming back to college, I took my first civil rights course civil rights course, I should say, and it was amazing. And then I had the opportunity to interview my um, great, great uncle at the time when he was 103. And so I was like, you know what? This is what I want to do. This is what I, this is what I enjoy. This is what I love. And then at the same time, I was finding out that I was going to be a dad. And so I was like, what better way to to use history uh, um, to understand how to raise a black boy and raised him to be a black man in this country. And so I ultimately decided to do history. So when you interviewed your, you say it was your uncle, right? Mm-hmm. What was the interview about, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, so yeah, great question. So 
Um, it was my senior thesis and I was the only black male in my history department. And so being black, I knew I wanted to write something on being black. And so it was really looking at how black Americans, well, enslaved Africans arrived here on the continent of North America and how they resisted the moment they got here. And so I really took a deep dive on how slavery is the grandparent, which gave birth to a child called uh, Black Holes, and which gave birth to a child called Jim Crow. And so I really wanted to look how how Black people resisted. And so my great great uncle at the time, on the on the latter later latter half of my paper, I wanted to um, how he resisted. And so, yeah, I, he told me how he. We refused to move off a sidewalk for white people and wouldn't look down. How he uh, challenged people in World War II, particularly his white counterparts. Um, and so that was what my paper was about. You know, and that was what my interview was about. And what was your outcome of the paper? Like, I'm sure it was a success, right? No one clapped. <laughs> I think no one clapped, and that. Uh, my white colleagues and even my professors asked questions that they didn't know of uh, about the history of black people really in deep, deep. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> we were all supposed to ask each other's questions on how, how was the research, what did you do? I think because I was only black male in that department, they all gave me a round of applause, but didn't ask questions that they didn't know what to ask mm. or how to frame the question. So it was interesting. That is. And so as you have matriculated throughout your career um, and you have definitely made a name for yourself in this space, um, doing a lot of this work, you did one of many things that probably a lot of people wish they could have done was Mississippi had its first African-American museum opened up a few years ago and you was part of that work. Like, how was that for you coming from New Jersey, coming down to the South and being part of that movement? It was good. Um, and I would say it's not Mississippi's first African-American museum, okay. right? I would say it's Mississippi's Mississippi's first state-operated civil rights museum in the country, right? And so because you got to shout out Smith Robertson in Jackson, Mississippi, and the other uh, Black entities throughout the, uh, throughout the state. But it was, it was a privilege at 27 years old, coming out of graduate school, um, learning that Mississippi was building its first civil rights museum that was state operated. Um, it was, it, I was excited. Um, I was ready to apply. Uh, but to be honest, I have to say in the same breath, like I had a colleague tell me to apply and I was like, I ain't going to Mississippi. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's the, it's the, it's the same. It, it's, it's the, it's the same notion that everybody sh uh, shares that's not from Mississippi but the more you read about Mississippi, when I was going through the interview process, I was like, yeah, this is the place that I, I have to be. Um, and so it, it was an honor. It was a privilege. Um, it's forever going to be in my heart. When I, when I, and I was just in Jackson recently. When I walk by, I still say that is my museum. I don't care if the staff is there <laughs> respectfully, but it's, it's always going to be a, a special place in my heart. You know I mean? And it's the best civil rights museum in the country. And I work at another civil rights museum. So, you know, we have a way, you know, us Mississippians, we have a way <laughs> of 
we draw people in and we like to keep them, but, and, you know, we also, you know, we show so much love. So I greatly appreciate you for coming down, doing that work, um, and putting Mississippi, making Mississippi known in so many other places. Cause I always know you reference Mississippi when you're speaking, when you're talking in other engagements, but mm-hmm. before then you've also had the opportunities to work at places like the Margaret Walker center, um, and COFO civil rights, the education center at Jackson state. Um, you're now at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. So how do you, with all of the, that work that you have been able to do, how has it allowed you to bridge the past civil and human rights issues the social justice issues of the 21st century? Mm, that's a profound question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> good question. I would say really honestly, it's how I bridge the past to the present is really through simple conversations. I think. When you ask a lot of people what what was their favorite subject in school, a lot of eight out of seven out of ten people say it wasn't history. Mm-hmm. And then that it's, it's it's so hard to digest the history that we're constantly talking about, right? When it's civil rights, when it's uh, uh, slavery, uh, particularly any trauma that's dealing with black and brown people in this country is it's it's challenging for some people to digest, right? Um, and, and it may not be black people that's having a hard time digesting it, but the more you take a deeper dive into it, it is hard to digest. And so for me, I, I really try to simplify everything through conversations because that's how I learned history. It's not about dates, facts, all that. It's really, really trying to create the moment for the visitor or the people I'm engaging with to like, haha, I got it. That's how it's relevant, relevant in, to, in my life today. So for me, through all the spaces that I've been, I've been, been at, that's been my goal. Simplify history. Not my job to educate you, but like spark that light. So you want to be, you want to be willing to educate yourself. And so to me, that's how I bridge the past to the, to the present. You know, our past, you know, we have, our past actually crossed, I believe, like when I was working at COFO and um, I think that's probably the one unique thing we have in common. Um, and what I mm-hmm. will say is working at COFO, I was almost like that. I thought that I had to know all the dates, remember all the dates when I'm speaking and taking people around the civil rights movement, educating them on the civil rights movement. But what I realized mm-hmm. is that when you start embedding the history just into your heart, like the dates doesn't matter. It's about the story you're telling. And I found it very intriguing. And shout out to Dr. Chapman, who gave me that opportunity to be able to tell the stories of what happened during that during that time. And so that's why I was wondering, like, what? Because I didn't know at first because I wasn't a history major either. Um but I did criminal justice and mm-hmm. policy, but I felt like history nudged on me when I was an undergrad too. Um, and so that was one thing that I really liked about, you know, you telling your background, like you went from a biology major to a history major, like there's two totally different things. And yeah, like, two different things. <laughs> but you're still, and you made a big impact, but out of all the stories you've been able to tell, um, what is that one story in African-American history that, that's hard to always share that probably like it hits you. It hits at home every time. Hmm. That hits home. Uh, I think for me, I 
it's really the the mega Everest uh, story, right? Mm-hmm. In and Jackson. So if people don't know Mega Wally Everest or Mr. Mega Wally Everest, excuse me, I should say, and the WCP field secretary, the first doing amazing work in Mississippi, but also his impact being felt throughout the country. And he was assassinated June 12, 1963. Um, not the story per se hits home for me, but is the, 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 the oper- not the opportunity, that's not the word I want to use. It's the moment that I shared with his daughter, Rena Evers, Everett, who is the executive director of the Mega Merle Evers Institute in Jackson, Mississippi. And I had the honor and privilege to witness her interact with the rifle that killed her father. And this was what, 2017. And so I always paint the picture for the visitor when they come to the museum, because the rifle is on display at the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum. And, and I share that she walked into the room, she looked at it, she began to talk to it. You know, she began to cry. And this is this is a this is the rifle, not a person. And she was saying things like, I hate you. You took my father away from me. You took my best friend away from me. You took everything away from me in one moment. But my father has taught me not to hate, but I can't not hate you. And she got real close to it. And she said, if I touch you, I'll break you. And she left. And so for me, that is profound for several, several reasons, right? It is, number one, this is not an object that's a living, breathing thing, right? Um, Weapons are, weapons are used by people who want to cause harm, right? And so it felt in that moment that she was, she was directly speaking to Byron de la Beckwith, right? The man who assassinated Mega Everest. But then on the flip side, when I'm talking, when I was talking to visitors, my goal was to for them to understand that when you visit civil rights museums or any museums that is really dealing with um, trauma or racial terror, I should say is the proper term, particularly when it comes to people of color in this situation, black people, that these objects are not just things behind cases, they are living, breathing things, right? Because if you think about it, there's a curator or a museum professional talking about it every day in that space. Particularly in Jackson, Mississippi, there are people who are still alive that worked for Mega Evers, that knew him personally, right? Rena Evers, there's a gallery dedicated to Mega Evers in the Civil Rights Museum, and she purposely has not watched the film yet. And the museum's been open since five years. Miss Merle, Miss Merle Evers Williams, um, the widow of Meg Revers, so when she came and visited the museum, she sees the picture of her husband and says, that's my baby. Did not go into that section and watch the film where the gun is located and kept going. And so for me, that is the most profound story that, I, that I've that i experienced, but also I share with visitors for them to understand that this history is still living and breathing. The trauma, I think that's what struck out to me the most, like, they're avoiding their trauma and their experiences and mm-hmm. knowing that mm-hmm. that that gun resonates right now here still um 
and it's being kept in a space where most people go and you like, no, I can't do this. Like I can't, I can't go like that's mm-hmm. That just hurt my heart. Like just by you explaining mm-hmm. it to me in that way. So thank you for sharing that. Um, and so I have to ask, as you've been doing this work and you've studied so many um, black people, um, civil rights leaders throughout your career, who is that one leader that has admired you? And if there's more than one, you know, please feel free to share. But who is that one leader or leaders that has that you admire and have influenced your work? I would say somebody that no one knows, and that's my mama, Desiree Wheeler, mm. a leader for me in my community. Come on, mama. Uh, a leader for me. Um, and my father, James Wheeler, as well. Like Those are my leaders first in my household. And then I have to say, historically, it would have to be it has to be Meg Evers, Malcolm X, uh, Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer, um, I would, yeah, those, those, those people, those individuals, I will also say Fergus Douglas as well, those people really sit home with me, um, for multiple reasons, right? You know, <laughs> and I always jokingly say, like, number one thing, and this is just not thinking as a historian, just being a regular person, like, the men's shape-ups and haircuts were always crisp. <laughs> like, always crisp. I never saw a misplaced hair on none of these individuals. But then also, like, the, the fortitude and the courage yeah. to stand up in a moment in history where being Black, which is still re- is still prevalent today, can get you killed. Right. Having a voice and not and refusing to be first class citizens in a country where you you should be first class citizens, Mm -hmm. not second class. And so and then then when I when I come back to the women, the women themselves, the. You got to say black women in particular, they are the movement. Mm -hmm. They they are making everything happen. They are the mobilizers that they're the organizers. Um, and now we're getting to a place in history where we're talking more about the work that women are doing. And it's it's surprising. You can't talk about the great men without talking about the great women. Mm. And so th- those are my those are my heroes and, and leaders who I often reflect on and thinking about um, when when talking about civil rights uh, history and, and even curating these experience um, as a museum practitioner. I like the and, and one more I forgot and Miss Murley Miss Murley Evers Williams right you know when we when we read her name usually it starts with the the widow of Meg Rivers but she has accomplished so much on her own as a leader um, so those those are my people and you can tell most of those people are from Mississippi but. Uh, I mean, you know, we produce the greatest of the great, but no, seriously. That is true. That is true. Um, But seriously, though, first of all, it takes you to realize that everybody's hair was done good. So I had to laugh at that because you know how to always bring out a sense of personality into, you know, the work that you do. And you see, you always notice everything. Like, Lance, that's one thing I've always admired about you. Like, you pay attention to detail. And detail isn't always about the work, but it's about the persona of people, learning what humanity is about, learning people and what not only the work that they've done, but who they were as an individual. And it's like you 
And even for me, I remember even when tapping into this work, you as you begin to study them and understand them, it's kind of like you wonder like what their life was like. Because like right now, Malcolm X is one of my all-time favorite um, people. So I was glad you shouted him out. And I had a chance to meet his daughter um, at Kofo. But I'm also watching this show called um, The Godfather of Harlem right now. And... Fire. <laughs> it's if you're not if it's on um Amazon Prime. So if you have not watched The Godfather of Harlem, I would suggest it. It gives you a deep dive into a whole lot that happened in Harlem. But realizing, and I'm not trying to spoil it, but realizing how much Harlem had such a had such an influence in what was going on in Mississippi, like that was so powerful to me. And and yeah, so if you're not if you're listening. Go watch Godfather of Harlem. Like it literally will make your brains just start putting pieces and connecting mm-hmm. the dots together. And and so yeah, thank you for sharing it. And I'm very They're on the third season. I it's know. on the third season. It's also it's also on Hulu too. Oh, I know. But I think I think what I think what makes that history important is the the, the connectivity of black mm-hmm. leaders, right? Most people don't know like Meg Evers is talking to Malcolm. I mean, um, talking to Dr. King. You have you have Malcolm talking to Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali. Like the connectivity of the leadership alone that these people are communicating, right? And they may not always have the same approach, mm-hmm. but they all they are all talking. They are they are brainstorming. They are they all are trying to change the system. Uh, what we call the American system, right? And, so and they that that, that is just, uh, that's interesting. Yeah. They sh- and one thing I like about it too is that part what you said, but just seeing their strategy, it was like what you said, like they communicated in ways we didn't even realize how connected they were together. Because of course, it's almost like you don't know who's friends with who. Like in that show, like you realize you did not know, like these men literally sat down, had coffee, like they were close knit and it was showing and also demonstrated how black men, when they come together, like how powerful and impactful they could be. And I feel like that's the part of white supremacy that had, that they did not like. They know how powerful black people are and, and that just resonated with my soul. So thanks for like bringing it out. But yeah, I didn't know you was watching it. Um, Yeah. um, yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, how do you view? So we all know that Black History Month started yesterday. Um, but mm-hmm. how do you view Black mm-hmm. History Month as a historian, and its meaning to acknowledge the past and the present of Black people? And do you believe Black History Month truly represents Black culture to its entirety? Let me first say I, I put up on social media recently, just as a joke, but was it one of your Fight Me Friday? Not, uh, I do not fight anybody close, but black people should be off for the entire month of February with pay. That's just my opinion. Mm. Um, and my son agrees. He He's asking why he should even go to school. But um, <laughs> let me first say, I th- black history is important. Um, but it's also important to know that one month does not signify the impact of black culture both in America, but also internationally, right? That the Black diaspora, right? Um, but it, it's important. We, we we do need to uplift the stories. Uh, but, but my issue, my only, I wouldn't even say an issue, my only 
thought about Black history. It's more about it's more than just talking about the civil rights movement. It's more than just talking about slavery, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's also talking about the 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 joys, the wins, hip hop. It's talking about the the uh the geniuses, right? The authors, the poets, mm-hmm. um music. Uh when I think when I also think of Black history. Now, I know this is more summer, but I'm thinking about Black people laughing, playing music, double Dutch, having a good time and enjoying themselves. I think that is what Black history is. Uh, but I also think that's Black culture throughout the entire year. Mm. So that that is my thought. It is important, though. I think it, I'm glad you said that because... I got a call yesterday and it was someone who was trying to find something for their organization of young leaders to do um, for Black History Month. And I was resonating with, I was like, you know what, do something different. Like I ended, I was like, we often talk about, we always talking about what you just said, the that part, you know, the slavery and, you know, Jim Crow and all of that. But there's history that's still being made right here, right now today. And we don't often talk about the future leaders and so um, I can't think of the actress that just won. Um, I can't think of her name. She had just won a. Um, it was not a. a don't ask me. I don't know. I don't know nobody's name. <laughs> but not, anyway, not when, come, she, not when it comes to actors. <laughs> and she said um, she gave a speech <laughs> just about. Uh, she gave a speech just basically reflecting on how she got to where she is and like how you kind of push yourself forward and she could tell herself anything she accept who she was like her her lips and her nose and all of that type of stuff Mm -hmm. and so I said like and and you know she's like in her later years but she just won this award oh and sorry y'all that I cannot think of this woman's name oh you're talking about Moesha's mama yeah Moesha mama what was her name this the fact that we call her (laughs) the fact that we call her and and most people know her as um uh, the teacher on Abbott Elementary. I know you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. So let me. Mm-hmm. You know what? I'm gonna Google. This is why I love doing podcasts. Like when it's just conversational. Yeah. But um, Moesha Mama. But anyway, uh, Shirley Ralph. Ralph. That's it. Shirley Ralph. That's it. That's how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, anyway, mm-hmm. she basically said this remarkable speech, and what I wanted her to understand was that get your girls or get the group to talk about what is their imagery? What about them that they accept as who they are as a black woman right now in, in America? And the reason why is because I really wanted them to truly go back, listen to her speech and listen to what she said. Um, because like what you talked about, you can't talk about, you know, the great men if we don't talk about the great women that who just paving waves that we didn't even know about. So yeah, I really like the mm-hmm. way that you you view black history now because it has changed and I feel like that it should change. And I do agree with Landon. We should be uh <laughs> black people should definitely be <laughs> off on Black History Month, I wish. And you know, we still need our reparations. No, not a whole month. Give us the give us the week. Cause you know, it started as a week. Like give us the oh, give us a week. Okay. You know, you teaching me give something. Give us give, give us some give us something okay i like that we you know that'd be dope and you know we give, me, could give be, me a day give me two days that could be reparations well we'll, we'll talk about that another day <laughs> 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 i know um so i know you are a 
big reader because you have to read, you know, you wouldn't be you if you wasn't, you wouldn't be the person that you are if you didn't always educate yourself on some of the things that you teach people about. So who is your favorite black author and why? Everybody asked my favorite black uh, athlete. I was going to say LeBron James. But uh, <laughs> that's another conversation for another day. If I had to pick an author, and as of right now, once again, I'm coming back to Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And that's and it's, it's Kiese Layman. You know, I, 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 I like, if you, if you all don't know who he is, you all need to Google. Um, one of my favorite works, that he's written was heavy, right? And he's talking about his black boy experience growing up in Mississippi and him finding himself and him understanding who he is. But it's also like the 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 journey that he's taking with like writing, reading, his relationship with his mama, his grandmother, his father, his relationship with food and and and, and even white people in Mississippi. It's phenomenal work. Uh but it He's my favorite because he's so raw. He's not so let me wear a suit and talk. He's more of like, hey, I'm wearing a, I'm wearing a, I'm wearing a, a, a fitted. I'm, 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 I'm myself. I'm, I'm black, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk like everyday people. It is not the stuffy. Hello, uh, I am, I am. It's more like, hey, he, he dropping f words. He, he's simplifying. His work and contextualizing uh, uh, um, uh, literacy, his history, like it's for me is him. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think because I, I like make things simple for people. Make let's have a conversation. I think he does that very well. But he's also coming from a tree of like Dr. Margaret Walker Alexander. He's coming from a tree from like. Richard Wright, even Udori Welty, these are Mississippians that I'm naming. Like he's coming from uh, uh, a tree of like Toni Morris. Like it's it's amazing. And so for me, he's he's phenomenal. William Faulkner, et cetera, et cetera. So, but he he is it for me. I'm definitely that's my contemporary work. Yeah, I'm gonna have to read that book. You haven't read it? I have not read Heavy. I've seen it. Oh, you gotta read it. So when I was teaching homeschool students. I will make them read Black Boy by Richard Wright, right? So they have an understanding of what what it is to be black in Mississippi, um, and what it what does it mean to be black in America during that time period. And then I made them read Next Coming of Age of by Coming of Age in Mississippi by Ann Moody. What it is to be a black woman growing up in Mississippi, while also fighting Jim Crow and and and, and getting involved in the movement. And then I had them read uh, Kiesa Lehman. Black men. All three of those, three of those individuals were Mrs. Are were or are Black Mississippians, and so I think the connectivity of you're seeing from the 1940s to the 1960s to like mid early to early 2000s is phenomenal, and it's a theme that runs through it. Right? What does it mean to be Black in the Deep South? Mm-hmm. What is your relationship with food? What is Black love? You know, like really is like me beating you to make sure that you understand and I'm keeping you alive because of white supremacy. It's that love, the relationship with food, uh, constantly understanding your blackness in America. It's uh, those three books. I think that it does it very well. You got to have the same so. in your reading list. <laughs> okay. I see your reading list. Yeah. Cause that, and you know, cause although like 
I'm a big reader and most of the books I've read has like I love um I'm actually listening to re-listening to uh the uh, Eddie Gall um Begin Again. It was like he talks, you know, with James Baldwin. So, oh my gosh, you got to listen to it. And one thing that resonated with me because I'm re-listening to it on Audible. He said at the end um that uh, James Baldwin made a statement is that it's not our responsibility to save white people. And I've been Stop. I've been like having that quote or that sentence um, resonate with me over the past few weeks because, you know, I think about not only like the history that we've been through, but I think about where we are right now and the constant DEI discussions, diversity, equity, inclusion for those who don't know. And now they add J, which is justice. And I just think about all the stuff that we're doing as black people right now and taking this moment of black mm-hmm. history um as because it's like not only because it's black history month but it's just like you know we we become exhausted and it's kind of like has been black people every day <laughs> and it's like it's been black people responsibility to teach the white people mm-hmm. on what racism is and how we're feeling day by day and it's like you know at what point do we get to breathe when we just be and I think for this month, like for me, I wanted to like get into a space where I'm learning just how to be and read different mm-hmm. stuff because it's like I'm tired and I'm, you know, you become exhausted. Mm-hmm. And so because we're constantly fighting white supremacy culture, kind of like how you talked about the love pieces, like is love truly beating your kids or beating somebody or whooping them and making them feel like, hey, this is what you got to do to act in line only to fight and combat the systems that were created by them. So thanks for truly pointing those books out. And I'm looking forward to that reading list. (laughs) I got you. Great. So as a black man, you are also a father. And you share these stories every day at work, um, uh, you know, of the civil rights and human rights era. Explain your emotions and how do your reactions are when you see or hear about the vivid acts of police brutality towards black men here in this country? Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I, I tell people, and I, and I had mentioned this earlier, um, I was at I was at a point in college where I was about to drop out, not because I couldn't do the work, but it was when Trayvon Martin was killed, right? And I was at a point where I called my mother and like, "Hey, I mean, I'm about to drop out to be out here protesting in these streets." And my mother didn't tell me no. She said, "I, I want you to take a moment to think about your next step." And so I did that. Reflected. And it was like, you know what? My parents bust their ass for me to get their education. Mm. So I decided to stay. And, and I say to say that it's what sparked, really what pushed me to work so hard besides my kid to do this work. And then and then segueing that to 2020, 2020, 2020 excuse me. And then I'm going to call it a, not, I'm not going to call it an unrest, but Black people and people with some sense decided to say, enough is enough. Um, And that's when I ultimately decided I'm going to have to pick and choose on the content and information that's coming into my body. Um, Because, like you said a few minutes ago, this work is draining. And I think 
we as black people often pour ourselves so much into our work and this and this kind of work that we don't come up to breathe. Mm. And so I have made the conscious decision to be fully aware of what's going on, but be mindful what I'm downloading into my body with information. And so, yes, I'm aware of what's going on in this country. I'm tired, just like every other person, uh, black woman or, or black man or, or, or non-binary individual. Um, yeah, yeah, it, 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 it has its moments, um, but I, but I'm, I'm preparing my son's, my son's mom and I are preparing our son for the world, but we're doing it in, in, in little doses, right? Small amounts, but we're having these conversations. We're making sure that we just don't rip his innocence away. Um, I don't know if I answered the question. I feel like I just wanted to rant, but um, no, that's good because. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's hot. I mean, it's hard. Like, it's very hard to truly dissect, and you all, and you, and you know, like as a black man, like I'm that target, and I can't imagine mm-hmm. how it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it, it happens to black women too, you know, and and not mm-hmm. to dismiss that, but it's like I don't even know the answer for me. Like, I, I I try not to watch the videos. I think Trayvon Martin definitely did it for me, too. I remember sitting in the living room with my mom and sisters when the verdict came out, and, like, I was crushed. Um, mm-hmm. And you know what? I actually went back to graduate school after Trayvon Martin case because I felt like I always had this thing, like, my community is my responsibility. But at some point, like, at what point do you get mm-hmm. tired of that? get tired of that burden? Because you have to carry the weight, the work, the issues, um, and it becomes part of your everyday life. And so I can definitely understand your your response because it was honest. It was mm-hmm. it was authentic and it was you. And I couldn't expect for you to think mm-hmm. or feel any other kind of way. So yeah, you know, I also tell people it's hard doing this work, especially at a civil rights or human rights museum or entity where you have to tell people hope right it's, it, it change will happen uh but it's with every generation that it, it's going to happen and and that is difficult right that is hard um but i i agree with you we take them on that burden but somebody has to do it right mm-hmm. um and i think it is our responsibility as black and brown people to help move the goalpost for the next person Right. Um, and but in doing that, we also have to be mindful of how we're breathing and taking care of ourselves. That is key, because if you don't do that, you will die early. Right. You will burn out. You will walk away and feel like you don't want to come back. And so me finding that balance is my son talking to my son every day, hearing him laugh, talking to friends, but also sometimes it's sitting on the couch. Like sitting on my couch and just watch TV or listening to some music, typically like jazz. Uh, but then so <laughs> coming back to Mississippi where I had the privilege to meet the late Congressman John Lewis, Miss Murley, Miss Murley Evers Williamson, Bob Moses, Hollis Watkins, and the list can go on and on. And and you know, and them telling me, you know, 
we did the work for us to get this building, mm. right? And so it's your job to continue to let people know these stories of fight, fighting for equality, fighting for another day. So, you know, that that is a different responsibility when people directly who 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 told you this, right? This is your mission. And so yeah, it is it's hard, but we gotta remember to do self-care. And I think that's important about this this generation, the generation you and I are in and the generation under us that I think we are definitely more aware of like self-care. Um, so yeah. You said something about hope, which is going into the last question that I had um, <laughs> written down. And that is, you know, you talked about how this work has impacted your life and how it brought you to where you are today. Um, how do you gain that hope? Like, what does that hope look like for you in the future? I'm going to be honest. Racism is not going nowhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, 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 it, it, it's not. And it's... I think the hope that we, like I said a few minutes ago, is to move the goalpost to a better day each and every day. I can't control what happened yesterday, but I can control what's happening the next day, in the moment. And also I can control what's going to happen tomorrow by, by my own actions. And so for me, that is my hope. But and then once again, bringing it back to my son, he he is my hope. Um, He is my motivation. And so you can't be a parent and not believe things won't get better. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, yeah, that is my answer to hope. So, you know, I'm not a parent, but you just gave me a, a tool <laughs> and a nugget. To, one day I may reflect on that and I may say it, you know, mm-hmm. but thanks for dropping that jewel because listening to you as a black And if you're not a parent, yeah, but you are, you have you are auntie. Yeah, that's right? true. Your auntie, my baby. So, so <laughs> you may not be, you have you, you they may not be the babies that came out of your body, but they are your babies, right? And so, I think that is the motivation, and not put putting that pressure on my son. Like, oh, you have to be a change maker. Mm-hmm. Um, I want you to make a decision to follow your own path. Um, but when you're doing your own path, find a way to better yourself but also better the next person that looks like you. So I think that is the hope. Yeah, I always say too, to my, like when I'm giving speeches or when I'm speaking, I always say like the work I do for me is not just for me. I do say like, it's for my nieces and nephews that's coming behind me or, you know, it's for the next generation. Um, And so I can resonate with mm-hmm. you giving that, that sense of hope to your son um, because he needs it. He needs to hear that. And he needs to know like this, like, you know, when my father's out or he's, you know, he's doing his thing or when he's seeing you in your element, in your mode, you know, these are going to be the moments and days that he reflect on. And he's going to be doing interviews, maybe in podcasts about <laughs> or no telling what it's going to be in the future. You know, mm-hmm. my dad did X, Y, and Z and he inspired me to be able to pass a torch or even if it's not in this field but like something that he's going to do is going to be impactful that's one thing i do know um and i'm very excited to mm-hmm. see um the future where he you know the future laid out for him because of the work that we're doing today mm-hmm. i agree well, well this conversation has been good and i hate for it to come to a close Always. But- <laughs> 
<laughs> but Lance, thank you so much for truly taking the time to speak with us. And I'm really looking forward um, to more. I know you will be on my podcast again at some point, but thank you so Always. much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. And you have a good night. And thank you, podcasters, listeners, who's listening out there. So. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Politics for the Culture. You can find us on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. Be sure to follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram with Politics for the Culture. And until next time, blessings to you all. Thank you.